aware of. Today, after service, there's going to be a meeting, an informational meeting for the newly formed or soon-to-be-formed Palatine Community Group. And I just feel like I need to bring some clarification to this. Uh, If you're already in a community group, we're not necessarily looking for you to jump ship from your present group just to get a change of scenery. That's not really who we're looking for right now. Every September, we have what's called the community group refresh, where you have an opportunity to realign yourself with a different group or something like that. But what we're looking for is as we form this new group in Palatine, if you live in Palatine and you're finding commuting to Naperville or Northbrook is really, really hard for you and you want to you know, have that, that community closer to where you live, we're definitely looking for you to come to this. And if you're just not plugged into a community group at all and you're like, what is this community group stuff? It's a really good opportunity to get in at the ground level with a group that's just now starting out. And so if you fit one of those two categories especially, we're asking you to come out to this meeting and find out more. All right? Pretty clear? Can, can you all, just uh, as a personal favor to me, can everyone in the room smile at me? I'm very insecure. Can you smile at me like it's good to go to heaven and be saved and know Jesus? All right. Excellent. Uh, a couple other quick announcements will be flashed up the next slide. Uh, after service also in the fellowship hall, you have a chance to sign up for something we call Women of the Word. It's our elective Bible study for ladies only, so men need not apply. And there'll be a table in the back, and you can sign up for one of those groups. And at the same table, or at least reasonably close by, if you're a man, we have something for you too. You can sign up and register for the men's retreat. Now, as we mentioned before, we know that men's retreat falls on the same weekend as March Madness, but I really believe in the eternal scheme of things, you might actually survive missing a few basketball games. Now, I, I know it seems like a matter of life and death sometimes, and some of you, against the will of God, have hundreds of dollars riding on the outcome of those games. Shame on you, seriously. You know, but, but the point is, you don't have all these different opportunities to get together with the men of this church and learn how to actually be a man. And if you think that's not important, let me tell you guys, I talk to a lot of ladies in ministry, and when I say stuff like this, like, you know what? Men don't know how to be men anymore. Do you have any idea how, how many women go, oh my gosh, you're so right. 99% of the women in this world really believe there are no more real men in this, on this planet. Ladies, can I get a public amen? You all like talk about it all the time in private, you know, but men, it's important. We're losing sight of what it really means to be a man and not just a bag of testosterone, but a man. And I really think that you're going to learn about that at this retreat. So please just... Man up and sign up for the retreat. Stop fighting it because God's going to get you there one way or the other anyway. If we can't get you through regular channels, we'll make sure your woman is pushing you out the door that weekend and making you go. All right, a a couple other quick things. Uh, Next Sunday, oh, seeds, here we go. Uh, Third and fourth graders really need a teacher right now. And if you think you can at least take one rotation in that, it would be a really huge help to the seeds ministry. Ideally, we'd like to see two people sign up this particular announcement, this call for help, has been running for about a month now. And it's also, yes. How many? Okay. So when that happens, would you please let us know so we, we can stop? Uh, yeah, thank you. All right. Praise God. Uh, so we, we already got that filled. But there's another seeds-related announcement you should know about. If you have a child in pre-K, what age is that? Like four years old and younger. You're going to pick your kids up in the Harvest Lounge from now on. It's been turned into some kind of a makeshift playground. And so that's where you'll go instead of the regular place to pick up your toddler. All right? 
Uh, last announcement that we have is on May 11th, or May, March 11th, next Sunday, there's going to be an informational meeting for those who are thinking about going with us to Tuba City, Arizona, where we have ministry in the summer to Navajo and Hopi Indian people. And I, I want to really commend this trip to you, especially if you're a family and it's hard to think about going all the way to Africa or China or someplace like that. Just going to Arizona as a family, it's a really wonderful thing. Our family's done it last year, and we're going to do it again this year. And I want to commend that to you. A lot of the details have already been set. So, this, so next Sunday at the meeting, you're going to really find out more of the details, and it's, you're going to find it very helpful in making a decision. So if you're thinking about it, please do not miss that meeting. I think that's all the announcements I've got. Why don't we, oh, and of course, the little insert that you got. Don't you dare forget this. And come an hour late to church with some excuse next week, all right? Daylight savings time. I guess it's a big deal because somehow the start point, starting point of daylight savings time changed this year. And so next Saturday, before you go to bed, flip your clock ahead one hour. Spring ahead. Of spring forward, fall back. Is that how it goes? Spring forward, fall back. So set your clock ahead. That means you lose an hour of your life. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Please do it and call your friends who are particularly forgetful because I know we're going to have at least 30 people walking here at 1045 next Sunday looking really confused. All right. Well, why don't we rise to our feet and let's get some blood flowing and say hello to our neighbors. <clears throat> Okay, I'll do that. Thank you. Okay. Okay. All right, folks, why don't we start making our way back? She is running a hundred miles an hour in the wrong direction. She is trying, but the canyon's ever widening in the depths of her cold heart. So she sets out on another misadventure just to find She's another two years older and she's three more steps behind Does anybody hear her? Can anybody see? Or does anybody even know she's going down today? Under the shadow of our steeple With all the lost and lonely people Searching for the hope that's tucked away in you and me Does anybody hear her? Can anybody see? 
Powerful video, isn't it? Must have watched that at least a dozen times this week, getting ready for the sermon. And each time I watched it, two things just kept running through my mind. The first thought was, there's a lot of people out there who really have no place. Their hearts have been hungry for as long as they can remember, and they always find themselves on the outside looking in. And I just kept thinking, I wonder how many people that you and I know or running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. The second thought I had very strongly was, God, please do not ever let Harvest become the church in that video. Ever. It pierced my heart to watch that us and them attitude come out 
as if that person standing there is just invisible. And the only time we see them is when we judge them. I don't think that that's where harvest is. And so I hope that this message will continue propelling us further along in the right direction in becoming a welcoming church. The message today brings to a close our ongoing series now of nine messages where we're looking at each of the different elements of a Sunday worship service at Harvest and asking God to breathe new and fresh life into these familiar things we do all the time. And even though the fellowship time is not formally a part of this worship service, it's a fitting place to bring the series to a close. Because truth be told, no matter how great the worship service is, it is what happens in the fellowship hall that represents the last flavor on most people's mouths as they walk out of this church building, Sunday after Sunday. You know, I read some surveys, national surveys about the church, and statistics continue to affirm that preaching is still the number one reason why people go to a church. They hear about a preacher or someone recommends them, and they go to hear, and that might be what fills the pews initially, but it is almost always what happens in the fellowship hall that keeps people coming back to a church. And the truth is, when people are telling me that they're leaving, and I ask them, it's not always that they tell us it's because we have the wrong programs, the preaching is lousy, though sometimes that's the case. But a lot of it has to do with, I came here, full of hope that maybe I might find a place. And the truth is, I never really felt like I plugged in. I never felt like I connected with anyone. And it was a weird feeling to be in a room full of so many people and still feel lonely, and I didn't like it at all. And so a lot of people will leave a church or stay at a church largely on the basis of what takes place after the service as we have a cup of coffee in our hands and are desperately trying to figure out if this is a place that we can call home, family. We're going to look at a bunch of different passages this morning. <clears throat> and I want to talk about two groups of people we have an obligation to when it comes to the fellowship time. And the first group I want to talk about is the strangers among us. And when I talk about strangers, welcoming strangers, I'm not talking about weird people, not like strange, like you're, you're unusual, but those people who are walking in here for the first time or maybe been here a few weeks, but they really don't know anyone. They are the outsiders looking to become insiders somewhere. Maybe not necessarily here, but this is what we're called to do. We're called as a church to be a welcoming place, a safe, hospitable place for those who are on the outside looking in. I want to ask you to take take a look at Matthew chapter 25 with me. Would you turn there? Matthew chapter 25. And specifically, take a look at verse 35. Matthew 25. Verse 35. You know, a lot of people love to talk about how Christians should act, right? Isn't that true? And it seems like a lot of people who are not Christians themselves have very well-defined opinions about how Christians ought to act. And I think that's fair. But we don't have to wonder at how a Christian should act. It's not a matter of opinion. Jesus himself, he, he really told us very clearly how he expects people who follow him to act. There are certain sets of behaviors that Jesus outlines quite carefully and says, if you follow me, these are at least some important things that you ought to be about so that people, when they see you, make the right association with me. I don't want you to act otherwise and continue to speak my name because that's not what I'm about. 
And so Matthew 25, Jesus gives this great list, and it seems to show what a deep heart of concern he has, especially for people who find themselves in some form of need. And he has this formula, he says, do this, and it will be as if you're doing it to me. That's Jesus' way of saying, so great is my concern for people who find themselves down and out, that if you help them out, I will consider it a personal favor. It will be in my accounting system as though you had actually done it directly for me. That's how much Jesus identifies with people who find themselves in a difficult situation. And in that list, he talks about how we are to respond to people who are hungry and thirsty, naked, sick, in prison. Those are very obvious needs, aren't they? And when we think about those things, it's not really, uh, it's really a no-brainer. How ought we to respond to these people as Christians? Obviously, we ought to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and so on and so forth. Those things are very clear needs. But then in the midst of all that, Jesus throws in this very odd thing that, you know, have you ever done Highlights Magazine? Which one of these things does not belong in the picture? One of these things is not like the other. Remember from Sesame Street? I'm thinking, okay, so hunger and thirst and sickness and imprisonment and nakedness, all serious problems. But then he throws in there, and you are to welcome strangers. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, I know that it's a problem when I'm in prison or sick or all of that. But why would you lump in being a stranger as one of these desperate human needs that God specifically identifies as being at the heart of what Christians ought to be doing in this world. And more I thought about it, I I realized those other needs are important. But I realized that when I meet with people week after week and we share our hearts, what's coming out is almost never, Pastor Dave, can I borrow a few bucks? I'm starving. I sure am hungry. I'm so thirsty. Do you have some water? You know how many people come to our office and we offer them drinks that are always like, no, I'm okay. And we're like, are you sure? We have coffee. We have water. We have soda. Seriously, I'm not thirsty. I haven't met that many people who walk into the office naked, thank goodness. Sure, there are some sick people, but I usually see them in the hospital. But you know what I talk to about with most people? I am desperately disconnected from things. So much of what plagues people is that they're grown adults out of school, in a workplace, and yet every day they wake up and go, why am I doing this again? Who am I doing it with? Who am I doing it for? I don't feel like there's any place in my whole life where I really fit and I just belong here. I am desperately searching for some group of people who will embrace me like I'm actually a family. And the thing is, so many people today grew up in broken families so that even the people with whom they share blood and DNA, they cannot honestly say, that is a safe place for me, a place where I really feel like I belong. I think one of the deepest human needs arises out of that feeling that I'm a stranger, an outsider, looking through the window At a group of people. And you saw the look in the video. As she hears their laughter in the coffee shop. And it produces pain. Because that's exactly what she doesn't have. She's jogging and sees all those people. Mingling on the lawn. And not one of them take notice of her. It's like she's invisible. And everyone else has a place. But she doesn't exist. She's a ghost. 
I think that's why Jesus, looking at all these other deep human needs, felt it was necessary for us to hear him say that those who are strangers in need of welcome, that's a real serious need. The truth of it is that I think most of us can tough it out through the travails of physical hardship. I can last a little bit with hunger and thirst and sickness, but I've seen loneliness and isolation knock people out for the count. I've seen it devastate lives. I've even seen it make people feel like they don't want to live anymore. And they've come and talked to me about ending their own lives. In Hebrews chapter 13, you can slowly turn there if you'd like, or if not, you just listen. Hebrews chapter 13, this is how the 13th chapter of Hebrews begins. <clears throat> listen. Let brotherly love continue. And do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's a really cool verse, I think. It says, don't let brotherly love slip away from you. But in fact, make sure you remember to show hospitality to the strangers among you. And you know this interesting thing. The Greek word hospitality, uh, it, it's, xeno, it's philoxenias. Okay, and that doesn't mean anything to a non-Greek scholar, but it's, it's probably two word roots you might recognize. Like philo, philos, like, a, like for example, philanthropist, someone who loves their fellow man. Philos is the root for love, and xenias is like the root of, of stranger, like xenophobia is a fear of stranger. You put those two things together, and hospitality literally means love for strangers. We think hospitality means really knowing how to put on a killer dinner party or set an amazing table and cook great food. That's part of it. But at the root of this idea of biblical hospitality is that we are moved to genuine love for those who are on the outside looking in. Those people who need a spirit of welcome and yet we are not under any obligation to extend it to them. Hospitality is never a duty so much as it is a choice we make because we celebrate what is good and warm about being a human being, and especially about being a follower of Christ. Do you have a love for strangers in your heart? You know, we're watching King of Queens, which is fast becoming our favorite show on television. And luckily, it's in, it's in rerun mode now, so we can watch a different episode every day for 30 minutes. And yesterday, they were talking about how like, they needed to go on this double date to a, a Knicks basketball game, and they need to find a couple... And so the wife suggests this one couple that the husband doesn't know. And he says, I hate people I don't know. I hate people I don't know. I thought it was a hilarious line. So honest. I hate people I don't know. So many of us are like that. We see somebody we don't know and there's absolutely zero impulse to actually know them. We're like, whatever. I don't need any more drama in my life. I know exactly as many people as I care to know. Could everyone else politely stay away from me? I'm, all, I'm okay, I'm set, thank you. I don't need any more friends. I think a lot of us have that attitude. There's this really interesting little twist here in this verse where the writer of Hebrews says, listen, as if to add a little extra motivation, you shouldn't forget to show hospitality because some people, when they took in a stranger, were actually entertaining angels without knowing it. You know what that reminds me of? I mean, here's what he's really saying. He's saying, some people just open the door to a stranger, and instead of just being a regular traveler in the night, this was God's messenger in disguise. 
I thought, what a sneaky thing for God to do. What is that all about? What are angels doing sneaking into people's houses under disguise and mooching food off of them? Here's what I think it's about. It's like when a a retail corporation sends out undercover operatives, auditors, to go to all the different branch locations and local stores just to see at the root level what is the customer experience at our store. I used to sell subscriptions or tuitions uh, for for the uh, Princeton Review SAT class when it was just getting started. I worked for the guy who owned the franchise for all of Chicagoland, and I basically lived in his apartment all day making phone calls and answering the phone. And this guy would just basically drive his Porsche all over town and go skiing in Colorado and whip me around. And I remember once in a while, he even said this to me to warn me, once in a while, I'm going to call you and disguise myself just to see how you're doing. And so I'd never know. I'd get a phone call, and there'd be some really strange, difficult person with an unusual accent, and he'd just be giving me the hardest time. And I'm like, dude, is this you? It keeps you on your toes. It's a way for the boss to say, I want to make sure that my people are being true to their character and mission. That they're not falling asleep at the wheel. And so once in a while, it's as if God is saying, I'm dispatching angels to see if in your homes and in your churches, there is a warm place by the fire for people to come in out of the cold. Because it is so important to the mission of God's people to be a welcoming place for the stranger. That God is auditing us, and at least at one level, it is an important way that God measures the church. It is as if God is saying, your character as a congregation will be measured in his eyes by how the strangers among us are treated. Do you hear that? See, we could have the greatest preaching in the world, and we're almost there. We could have amazing programs, a cathedral made out of diamonds. But people will judge our church as God will, largely by how the strangers among us are received. I've seen churches that are the green berets of doctrinal purity. Oh, we shall cut off with the hatchet of the Lord every false belief and every half-truth. Good for them. They're some of the most unloving cusses you would ever want to meet. They're big turnoffs because they have moral purity, doctrinal purity. They hate people. Just hate them. Let's not become a church like that. You know, God weighs us by how the strangers among us are treated. And that's not just the church's job. Have you noticed the church is sort of like when you have that, that mystical collective generic they? Like, oh, they say this is a great thing to have, honey. They say we should get the Nintendo Wii. Who's they? Oh, you know, it's really me, but I want to be affirmed by invisible, generic others, you know? And so when we talk about our personal failures, we often throw in the church. You know, the church should be more welcoming. Does this building say hi to people? Has the pew ever given someone a hug? Has this podium ever asked you how your week has been? What do we, what do we mean when we say the church ought to be more welcoming? Well, for anyone saying that, really their assessment of how welcoming our church is boils down to the two or three encounters they had with specific people before they left. That means every Sunday you have an opportunity to represent our church well or poorly in the name of Jesus Christ. And your one small encounter, which may not seem very significant in the big picture of things, it might happen for 30 seconds and you've moved on with your life, but that might be one-third of a person's feeling, an assessment of whether this will be a place they will continue to come to find their home 
in Christ. I want you to just be aware of that. Why does it seem like sometimes the people who are the biggest insiders are often the least welcoming people? Have you ever noticed that about groups? It's like the ones who are most and the core seem the least motivated to bring anyone else inward. Now, that's, that's pretty cynical, and I don't mean to suggest that's what I'm finding at Harvest, but I've been in part of enough groups to know that usually being an insider does not relate you know, directly to being the most welcoming person. And I think one theory of why that happens is because when you're in the inside for a long time, that familiarity lulls you to sleep, and you forget what it's like to be a stranger. In the end, we're all like Doug Heffernan a little bit from King of Queens. We hate people we don't know. We don't mean we actually hate them. We hate the concept of having to go through the drama of going, Hey, my name's Dave. Who are you? What do you do? Oh, that's so interesting. And you're thinking, not. I don't want to know you. It's too hard. I like the people that I know already. And the whole concept of getting to know new people is oppressive for us. I think we're all a little bit haters of strangers. In fact, I think that's why most of us reflectively, when we're invited somewhere, what's the very first question you ask? Oh, who else is going to be there? Who else is going to be there? And when you find out, oh, actually, you don't know any of them, but they're really cool people, what happens in your heart? Hey, you want to come to my house for dinner? You don't know any of the other 30 people coming, but they're really nice, trust me. And you're like, yeah, that sounds like a great evening. Us and a whole bunch of people I don't know. Woohoo! Pop open the champagne. Most of us hate that scene. Most of us just hate it. I think that's why it's a good discipline for us to remember on a regular basis what it's like to be a stranger. When you get that kind of invitation, instead of listening to your natural instincts and not accepting the invitation, can I encourage you to instinctively just go, yes, I'll be there. A chance to be a total stranger? Of course I'll take it. You know why? Because when you put yourself in that situation, it sensitizes you. It reminds you what it's like to be on the outside looking in. It makes you understand with a broken humility what it must be like for those people who come to this church and don't know anybody. It might actually remind you of what it was like for you when you first came here and tried to find your way. You know, I forgot what it's like to be a stranger in a church. Once in a while I go to speak at a retreat and no one knows who I am and they don't know I'm the speaker and I'm just kind of sitting there. And they mistreat me and ignore me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what it feels like to be a stranger. It's good for my soul to go through that. In fact, that's why we mandated years ago that the people on our welcoming team, the connections team, are supposed to go out at least once a year to a church, just, you know, Russian roulette right out of the, uh, the, the yellow pages. You're not supposed to know a single person there. Just drive one Sunday morning and find a church and pull in. Then you'll know what it's like to know nobody. And you'll begin to understand what feels good and what feels bad in the way they respond to you. Can I encourage you as a discipline that whenever you get an opportunity to be a stranger, take it. I think God will use that to shape in you a heart that appreciates what it's like to be that person. You become a lot more like Christ. There's another group of people beyond those to whom we are showing hospitality or love of strangers. And that is our own family. Loving our own families. Don't you love that little picture? <clears throat> I think those are both boys, but it's okay. They're young. <clears throat> and it is about brotherly love after all. Let's just pretend they're brothers. It's so cute. 
In 1 Peter 5.14, Peter writes to the, the Christians, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5.26, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And by brothers, he doesn't mean to suggest only men, but saying all of those who are in the family of Christ, greet them with a holy kiss. I've mentioned this illustration dozens of times by now at, at this church. I'll mention it yet again. I love what Pastor Andy Stanley in, in North Point Community Church near Atlanta has to say about the way a person moves through the different phases of relationship in a church. He compares it to the way someone who's a stranger moves into your home and into your life. And the way he does it is this. He says, in the beginning, everybody is a stranger standing on your stoop looking in through the front door. And then the next step is they move into the foyer where they become a guest. And you've had those times where you're standing in the foyer the whole time and then you go. Because they're not willing yet to let you sit in the parlor. But then the next phase is you get invited into the living room where you're no longer just a guest, you're a friend. Some of the manners, of course, get dispensed with and and they're not as polite because you're now a friend. You sort of belong here. The ultimate step in a person's experience is to move from the the front door into the foyer, into the living room, and finally into the kitchen, which is the heart of the home. That's where family eats. Guests and friends eat in the dining room. Family eats at the kitchen. And I love that paradigm because it helps me to understand how everybody moves through a church or through really any organization. And if that's the truth, if our ultimate goal is to find the strangers among us and draw them increasingly inward into becoming a part of the family, doesn't it stand to reason that the kind of family we are should be a good one? It's not like we're out there casting the net wide for all these strangers being outward focused and neglecting the fact that none of us really like each other very much in here. Come on and join the dysfunctional family. Come on, come on and become ignored as one of, the, one of the crew. That is not what we're aiming for. We're saying to people, we want you to become a part of a family that rocks. That's awesome. I love this family. For me to invite you into my family is for me to bless you. That's how I felt to Jeannie. I was like, you come into my family. Merry Christmas. My family's awesome. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like bringing people to our church is a gift to them or a burden? Do you say to people, come to my church, but, and then you got all the fine print, all the caveats, but listen, let me give you all the disclaimers. When some people don't look at you and smile, don't take a person, blah, 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 blah. Or do you say, I'm going I'm to do you a big favor this week. I'm going to invite you to Harvest Community Church. Fasten your seatbelt. Well, if we're going to have that attitude, then the reality must be that this family must be a good place to be. And that means we must not neglect the loving of our own brothers and sisters. I've noticed it's no longer the custom in America, or at least it's not as common anymore, to kiss people in greeting. I know some of you are really bummed about that. I freak out when some people come up to me and I'm like meeting them for the first time. They're coming up to me like trying to kiss me. I'm like, please stay away. That's weird. We don't kiss in America anymore. In fact, we've dispensed with the kissing altogether. I think Europeans, they're still crazy. They kiss each other like left and right. We shake hands in America, don't we? But you know, the thing is, when Peter and Paul exhort the Christians to have intimacy, they both exhort them to have a holy kiss. 
Why the kissing business? Sure, the kissing of their day was like the handshake of our day, but why not just say, greet each other with nice words? Why not exhort them to speak a greeting, to speak a blessing? Why something as up close and personal as touching lips to cheeks? Why? Because a kiss is physical. It's a violation of personal space. It gets us into a position of genuine intimacy. I think the subtext is simply this. We're not meant to be high-bye friends in the church. This isn't, this isn't the kind of intimacy God had in mind for us to walk past you and just go, Hey, what's up? That's what cool guys try to do, so they never really get up close and personal. But you know, when you see your real buddy, your old friend, and you can't help yourself, you hug each other like girls in there. <laughs> so happy to see you, man. And you know, that one awkward friend who's, who hugs a little too long, you're like, all right, it's cool, you know, get off me. But, but the whole thing is, that kind of physical greeting, it suggests to us there is an intimacy that is beyond just speaking words of salutation to one another. In other words, in the church, God defines the level of intimacy, not us. It's not up to us to go, I'm not comfortable, so here's my rules of engagement. I don't know what yours are like, but here are mine. And I'm going to basically walk around like the boy in the plastic bubble, telling you how close you can get to me. There are some people I've known for years, and I have no idea who they are. I kind of know them. I've memorized all the different facial features. But if you ask me to, to write three paragraphs about who they are, I could not tell you. Because they are like 007. They're shifting like the shadows. Like, who are you again? You know what? Because they never let you in. Their rule of engagement is this. And this is something probably more common than it should be. We have this strange categorization scheme in the church for some people, don't we? You've got your church friends, and then you've got your real friends. A- am I hitting any targets here? You've got your church friends, who are the people you smile at and you're cordial with in your religious context. These are my church friends. But then I've got my real friends. <clears throat> when I've got tickets to a big game, when my kid is having a birthday party, when I'm really sad and lonely, who do I reach out and call? And the thing is, many of us come to church and we categorize the people here in a certain very narrow spectrum in our lives. And this is the way most people in America live their whole lives. We've got to segment it like the, the pie in a trivial pursuit game. We've got all our different worlds and we get very freaked out when our worlds collide. When your church friends come over to dinner and they mingle with your work friends, you're like, Ugh, you know, you're totally anxious because it's such an awkward situation. That's the way a lot of us move through the church. What God is saying through things like greet each other with a brotherly, holy kiss, the kiss of love. He's saying, that is not an option I'm extending to the body of Christ. I'm not permitting us, those of you in the body of Christ, to have a hands-off, arm's-length relationship with other Christians. That does not factor at all into God's concept of the church, the precious body of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, when God calls himself our father, it is in part to tell us that that makes all of us brothers and sisters. You know, I I don't see too many passages, really, where it says, you in the church, by virtue of sharing the experience of salvation in Christ, are now buddies in Christ. Buddies. It says brother and sister. That's a very, very strong word. I don't know how you feel about your own brother or sister, but it's a very, very strong word. 
And those words don't describe how you feel about it. It describes what you actually are to one another. In other words, it's not about saying, well, I don't really feel like you're my brother or my sister. The truth of it is, theologically and biblically, you are my brother and you are my sister. And as such, I must, as Paul cautioned Romans 16, I must greet you as a brother or sister in a manner worthy of the saints. If you really are my brother or my sister, then I don't get to conveniently categorize you away as being my church friend whom I'm going to let in up to the front stoop, but never past the foyer of my life. Now, can I just suggest to you, some of you are in that very place right now. No one in this place knows anything important about you. We hang out with you. We stare at movie screens with you. We might eat food with you, but that's pretty much what cattle do in a herd. We haven't moved in to that private place where you begin to show us who you are. And part of the reason for that is because you haven't made up in your mind yet that this is going to be family for you. I'm trying to exhort you, to awaken you to see this. That God himself, by his authority, defines the way we relate to each other. Your sovereignty ends right there. It's not up to you to say to people, Mind your own business. This is my personal life. Because then what are you saying? What are we to share with you? Your superficial surface life? That is not what God intended. And that probably explains why you have such deep trust issues. It's not just because people have hurt you. It's because you've made a consistent choice to shut everyone out of anything meaningful in your own life. You know, what, you know what does that? It's not just pain. A lot of people think it's past pain, being burned before by trusting one person and they disappoint me. It's not really that. Most of the time, it's pride. I don't like to look bad in front of people. I don't want people raising their eyebrows at me or knowing stuff about my private life. Listen. If we're brother and sister, we're supposed to know everything, all the family warts and everything. You know how like there are inside jokes? Remember, remember on Friends how... Ross and uh, Monica had that, the dance, you know, the routine. And it was so dorky and embarrassing to watch. But it's that one little peculiarity in the family. They all had this thing and they thought it was the super coolest thing. And everyone else thought it was ridiculous. But family sticks together. We have things on the inside that only someone who's already here knows. And we all know that no family's perfect. But you know what? Darn it, they're my family. And if we're out there wearing this mask in front of each other, how are we ever going to feel like this is a place we call home? Do you really suppose, as you guard yourself and manicure your public image, that any of us actually believe you're perfect? That you have no warts, that you've got your family life, your business life, everything's perfectly together as you appear to be? How many people driving that Cadillac can't even afford to fill it up with gas? The whole world is a charade. It's an illusion. None of us are fooled. We all know you've got junk just like I've got junk. Family is where the junk gets to be laid out and the trunk gets to stay open. That's what family is. And somewhere along the way, you're going to have to humble yourself because it's God's desire that we stop pretending around each other and just choose to open up the door and say, I will let you in and we will be family here. I don't have to put up any pretense that I'm perfect. Believe me, the ones who most guard their impression, everyone already understands you got issues. You got issues. You're trying way too hard to convince us otherwise. You got some serious stuff you're hiding. Think about it right now. Is there anyone you've known at Harvest for like five years that when you really think about it, they're just a vapor, a 
concept, you really don't know them at all. God calls us in this family to really love each other beyond the level of intimacy that we're so carefully guarding. Are you with me so far? Pinch your neighbor if it looks like they're falling asleep. It's the brotherly thing to do. Let me end with a few practical responses that you can make. Because you know what? You're going to go downstairs in just a little bit, and you're going to get a chance to live out these principles. And you're going to make some choices today. You really are. Don't think you're just going to ride the current and to go on with your day. You're going to make active choices, and I want to help inform those choices with the Word of God. Let me give you an acronym that I'm simply not clever enough to come up with. Pastor Frank came up with this, and so I give him full credit, except for the last thing, I made a slight modification of what the E stands for. I hope you will forgive me. It's not patented or anything, right? It's the acronym CARE, which is shifted to the next slide, the CARE. And I want, to, I want to point out some things that you can do practically. The first is C, challenge your attitude. You've already got an attitude, a mind made up about the fellowship hour at our church. I don't know what that attitude is, but you know, if you're an introvert, you hate that time, don't you? If you're an introvert, the fellowship time really stinks. It's like you've already made up your mind, I'm going straight from this room to the parking lot to the car to home. I'm going to bypass that whole zoo altogether because that is just not my scene. Some of you extroverts, this is like your big war, war campaign. You're so upset that nobody else is as welcoming as you. And the extroverts have a temptation in hearing a message like this to believe they've got nothing to learn. Can I just speak to you extroverts for a minute? Extroverts are very busy often patting themselves on the back for how welcoming they are. You're gregarious, you're direct, you're friendly. But I'm going to challenge you also if you're an extrovert. Before you congratulate yourself on being so outgoing... Think about how your outgoingness is affecting the people you're talking to. Some people are freaked out by you. Okay? They are terrified. Oh my gosh, here he comes again. The close talker. The too happy guy. Instead of just thinking about your personality type and how natural it is for you, think about the other person as the starting point. I don't want to just come on strong in the way that I am because I'm just smooth like that, you know? I actually want to make you feel welcomed. So that's just a little challenge. Challenge your attitude. You've already got a really well-defined attitude about how you feel about that place. Rethink it. You know, it's not just a cocktail party atmosphere, if that's what you think our fellowship time is. It is a place where ministry happens. It is a place, a setting of very intentional decisions. In that place, the biggest dynamic is not whether you have the temperament of an introvert or an extrovert, But whether you are obedient to Christ in this simple thing, this is supposed to become a family. And in a family, there are no innocent parties. Everyone contributes to what the family's like. You can't just blame one member. We all make up what this church feels like. And you're making choices every week about that. Let me give you the second thing. A, ask better questions. I've often told you I float around the fellowship hall sometimes, quietly eavesdropping on your conversations. And I don't want this to sound overly critical because I'm just as guilty of it at times as anyone, but doesn't it amaze you what inane chatter passes for conversation in America today? You hear people talking to you and you're like, wow, did you have a lobotomy before you came to this conversation? Isn't there anything more interesting or meaningful we can talk about than that? 
I mean, seriously, it's like conversation is a completely dead art in our country. How many of you are comfortable being put in a room with a stranger and being told, speak to them for an hour? Uh, you have any index cards or suggested topics? Because I don't know how to talk to people anymore. How many of you guys dread that guy in the airplane who turns to you and wants to have a three-hour conversation? You're like, you know, that's why you bought noise-canceling headphones and you put them on religiously. You're like, I know the stewardess is going to tell me to turn it off, but this is my signal to all of you. Back off. I don't want to become your friend. You're just a dude in seat 3F. Just mind your own business. See, we put up a lot of walls, and when we try to talk to each other, we don't even know what to say. I think it's so important to learn how to ask more interesting, deeper, meaningful questions. You know, we can ask each other as a starting point. So, you know, how about them bears? And how do you like the weather these days? And cold enough for you? Those are good icebreakers. But if that's where it ends, seriously, how sad for us. Amen? There are other questions that can begin to draw out what's really going on in a person's life. And you might think it's really awkward, but just try it sometime. You will have a fascinating conversation. Sometimes I've asked people, what's the most interesting thing you're learning about yourself or about God these days? What's something that's got you so stressed out lately, it keeps you up at night with worry? Well, I just find out about what's going on in your life. What's, What's the biggest thing? on your plate right now, and they talk about it. And then I'll have a follow-up question. I might ask, all right, what do you think God is trying to teach you through that? Instead of just going, huh, interesting. Ask them a question back. What do you think God's trying to show you through that? Because chances are, that person hasn't taken that perspective yet. They're telling the story, but they haven't thought through it very deeply. You might even ask, well, what do you think God wants you to do now? Do you know what a piercing question that is for some people? Because it doesn't get asked very often. <clears throat> Hans, what, you know, you're, you're talking about changing. He's not really doing this. I'm just hypothetically thinking about changing jobs. And I got this great offer in Italy, and I'm really thinking about taking it. And that's like his dream come true, by the way. And I ask, I ask Hans, hey, what do you think God wants you to do? Well, you're not going to get some mindless answer there. That person's going to hang on a second. That's a good question. Let me think about it. And you've begun in that little encounter to start digging past the weather and the bears and all those other things like, you look really good, are you working out? Uh-huh. <laughs> we start to get a little deeper and we start to actually know something of worth about another person. The questions you ask define the direction of the conversations we're having. Now, I may not be doing justice to anything more than Pastor Frank's acronym. He might have had four totally different ideas in mind, but just go with me. R, I changed the wording a little. It's just really listen. Really listen. Have you ever had that kind of conversation with someone where the whole time you're trying to talk to them, their eyes are scanning the room to see who else they'd rather be talking to? (laughs) Yeah, wow, interesting. Hang on a second. And then they run off, hey, Jim, save me. This person's boring. How does it feel to talk to a person like that? They're like nodding mindlessly. You know, I do this all the time to Jeannie at home. She asks me something, I go, yeah. And then I go, oh, what? <laughs> I answer the question before I even hear it. We've got to learn to really listen to, to each other, to focus on the person standing right in front of you. And I know in that atmosphere downstairs with all those people, you sometimes feel the wrong pressure to say, you're supposed to greet everyone in the room. That's not realistic. 
You can't make a meaningful encounter with so many different people. But I would say if you could do this, every Sunday in Fellowship Hall, at least go home having had one meaningful encounter. One conversation where you could really say, I, we heard each other. For that five minutes, we really connected and I listened and I heard what they're saying. Because if you really start listening to someone, you might be surprised that past the superficial level of what you think you're hearing, they're saying something very, very profound. They're sending out a signal, sometimes even an SOS, and most people never hear it. You know, the truth is, if you ask a follow-up question that indicates you were really listening, people get so blessed by it because it's so rare today that we ever get truly heard. Do you know how many wives had this deep anguish that their husband never really listens to them? You know how many people today, teenagers, feel like no one listens to them? If we just listen, you'll be amazed at what people are actually saying. I'm learning that with my own 10-year-old son, Noah. I think we've got him so boxed in. Every time he opens his mouth, we think, oh, there goes Noah again. But if you really listen to him, sometimes he's saying something profound. He's exposing his heart to us. He's saying, this is me. Listen to how I'm feeling. And if you listen, it changes you deep inside. When you get downstairs today and you start talking to someone, don't blur your eyes and kind of look past them. Look right at them. It's a freakish thing when you just come right up to a person and you just... You know, you're like, listen, hey, that's you. you know? Eventually, you're like, oh, I must break away because it's so uncomfortable. But when we're downstairs today, I'm going to ask you, really listen and look at the person you're engaging at the moment. Let me give you the last thing. The E is extend it beyond the fellowship hall to your homes. Take it home with you. If that 30 minutes in Fellowship Hall is where we build community, this church is never going to be a family. There's no way we're going to accomplish it in that room once a week. That's a starting point, but I want to encourage you to take it well beyond that. You know, uh, this past Friday, it was very windy and it was kind of blustery out, and I couldn't find my garbage can when I got home. I found two garbage cans on the curbside. Neither one of them was mine. So I had this theory. One of my neighbors accidentally took my garbage can into their house. So I began going door to door, finding out who has stolen my garbage can. And that's when I really got to understand the difference between one kind of neighbor and another. Most of my neighbors, who I don't know that well, they answer the door and they hide behind the door like it's a lead shield and I'm radioactive. Yes? What do you want? Uh... I couldn't find my garbage can. Could you go to your garage? Uh-huh. Why? Because I think you might have mine. Oh, I'm sure I don't. Is that all? And they shut the door. And I'm out there freezing. You can see it's so windy that day. I'm freezing like this, and they're hiding behind the door. But three houses down are the Andersons, our good friends. We love the Andersons. They have really become friends to us and we to them. And when I knocked on their door and Diane answered the door, she looked once, once, she took one second look at my face. And she opens the door and said, Dave, get in here. And she had me come in out of the cold and stand in the foyer. And then she says, what is it? And that's, that made all the difference. That's when I really began to understand what it feels like to have a neighbor versus someone who lives in the unit next to you. This is what we're getting at. It's such an important gesture in our culture today to let someone into your home. You know, I don't blame those people for not letting me in. If they knocked on my door, I might hide behind my door too. Who are you? But in this impersonal culture called the United States, 
One of the most personal gestures you can ever make is allowing someone into your home. Are there people you've known for a long time and you've never been inside their house? It's a little awkward, isn't it? You're like, yeah, we're supposed to know each other, but dude, I don't even know where you live. How can we be friends and we've never opened our homes to each other? See, church is not the place where real fellowship and community gets built, not this building. Where the real fabric of our community gets knit together is in your living room, in my kitchen, in someone else's finished basement, whatever. In our homes, we start to know each other more deeply. It's a wonderful practice to just invite random groups of people from the church into your house. Just to feed them and hang out. And as I did this past weekend, berate them with my view of politics and the world. But at the end of the day, you've been in each other's homes. And you've taken that next step to say, you know what? When you come in my home, you're a friend now. And eventually... You're going to become family. And if there's someone in this church that you feel like, hey, we've known each other long enough. I'm coming over for dinner tonight. I don't care what you say. I'll bring KFC, but you better start letting me into your life. Go ahead and say it. Blame me for it. Be audacious and go, you know what? Isn't it about time we stop being public friends and I saw where you live? I know that for many of you, your home is your inner sanctum. But doesn't that right away tell you how valuable it is when you let someone else in? As we close out, the last thing I'll say to you is, uh, about five years ago, I preached this. I'll I'll say this one last time. I want to propose to you what we call the five-minute rule. Do you guys remember this? The five-minute rule is this. In fellowship time, you can talk to whoever you want, but in the first five minutes, you must talk to somebody you don't know at all or you don't know very well. If we could make that a rule in our church, you'd be amazed how far that would take us. And becoming a much more open place for those who are a stranger among us on the outside looking in. You know, we naturally gravitate toward the familiar faces. And we presume that some team somewhere in the church has a job of meeting all those quiet, you know, out-of-place people who are standing by themselves in the fellowship hall, desperately hoping that as they hold that cup, they look like they're into it. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? I've been there. You're just kind of standing there going, wow, I'm really lonely and no one's talking to me. And you see that person across the hall, and you're thinking, someone should go over there and and greet them. I'm going to tell you right now, it's just like farts. If you smelt it, you dealt it. If you see that person, you're the one who's supposed to go and say hi. Okay? If you see it, you go and do something about it. There is no team in our church who has the official job of greeting everybody who's standing around. We are the church, you and me. And today in Fellowship Hall, you will make choices that build our church or leave it where it is. And I'm asking you to make the right choice, the good choice. Can we bow together for a word of prayer as the praise team makes their way up? I'm not kidding when I tell you, you know, that what's going to happen downstairs in about five minutes is going to make a large determining factor for whether some people stay at this church or not. And I'm also going to tell you that you have a huge part to play in that. I know some of you haven't really been here very long, but 
please, I'm asking you, dispense with the heart of a visitor and become one of us. Just dive right in and, and start to really open your heart to other people. I don't want to be a part of a church where everybody's a stranger. I want to be a part of a church where we're family. And today, when we go downstairs, you're going to do something in active obedience to Christ that will make a difference there. Right now, your heart probably is in a different place from your neighbor's. You're a little anxious about how things are going to be down there. But let's pray together right now. God, there's some specific way you're challenging me right now about our fellowship time. Would you come and help me do what you want? Some of you, God's going to talk you out of just going straight to the parking lot. He's going to call you to just venture in and just walk into that room and take a chance. Let's open our hearts in prayer and ask God to accomplish what he wants in us.